Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Stocking Strangler, a Columbus Nightmare podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Banks. I'm an assistant professor of history here at Columbus State University, as well as the instructor of record of a new type of class that we offer for our prospective students on history podcasting. As such, I ask students to to think through a new type of genre of podcast, what I call a kind of true crime meets the classroom. And in doing so, they had to research and then record a season on the infamous case in, in Columbus's history, now known as the Stocking Strangler. So what I'm going to do now is introduce you all to the case, just like I did with the students the first week of class. In that first encounter with the Stocking Strangler case, I made sure to emphasize what media scholars tend to, to issue forth as a critique of the media. When serial killers strike, we often are confronted with the faces and the names of the individual or individuals who are committing these crimes rather than foregrounding the victims. So on that day when I introduced the story, I made sure to splash across the PowerPoint projection the images of the seven women who were killed from 1977 to 1978. To talk about these women, here are three of my students. Hi, I'm Georgia Maxi. I'm Alicia Reese. And I'm Angel Akintoye. Cross and Gary took the lives of seven elderly women status in Columbus, Georgia. These victims will not be forgotten. Mary Fern Jackson, 59. Jean Dimestine, 66. Florence Scheibel, 89. Martha Thurman, 69. Kathleen Woodruff, 74. Mildred Borum, 78. Jeanette Cofer, 61. These women won't be forgotten. Out of these women, only three of them were used to convict Gary, Scheibel, Thurman, and Woodruff. Six of the seven women were residents of the Winton area, the exception of Cofer, whose place of living is not available. Although not proven, another eight murders took place of the same nature, but there was never enough solid information. While there are a total of seven victims, there are also people that might have also been victims of the Stalking Strangler. They are Nellie Farmer, age 83, Jane Frost, age 55, Gertrude Miller, age 64, Callie East, age 75, Swift, age 58, Abraham Ilgis and his wife, age 83 and 75, and Ruth Schwab, age 74. All victims were of old age when they were attacked, which brings up the, some questions like, why did the stalking strangler target elderly people? The attacks ranged from theft three to rape. Between all cases, the methods of attacks were very similar. Also, some of the evidence of the crime scenes point to Carton Gary. For example, Gary's fingerprints were found at the crime scene of Nearly Farmer. Jean Frost's watch was found with Gary after she was assaulted, and the police found Ruth Schwab's sitting on the, at the edge of her bed with a stocking wrapped around her neck. Though like Georgia mentioned, we aren't really sure that this, all this evidence is enough to convict Carton Gary. I believe that it is, it is important to mention that though the victims I've mentioned were not all killed by the stalking strangler, thankfully, some victims were that survived these attacks were Jean, Jean Frost, Callie East, Swift, the Ilguses, and Gertrude Miller. My father has lived in the Winton area my whole life. I remember as a child thinking, why are there bars on his windows? 
I would ask him this, and he would tell me the story of the stocking trigger. But never did I realize just how real the story was. My father would refer to Car Carlton Gary as the stocking trigger, much like the people of Columbus, Georgia would. The panic and fear never left Columbus and the residents of the Winton area. I feared that he would come back or that there would be there would or could be an imposter to carry on with his plans. When we talk about the case, we focus on the tragedy that really took place, the lives that were taken too early, and their family who still grieves their deaths. What did these women have in common? White, elderly women living all alone in their winter homes. Another connection they all might have in common is the Big Ed Club. Which was an all-white organization, and I feel that it was interesting that five women out of the seven that Carlton Gary executed were connected with the Big Eddie Club. The only two that, was connect, that wasn't connected with the Big Eddie Club was Martha Thurman and Florence Shiro. Immediately after the murders of these women, the Columbus Police Department jumped into action. They found a suspect. That suspect confessed to some of the murders and then later also confessed to kidnapping the Lindbergh baby and assassinating JFK. So it's pretty clear to say that that person wasn't actually the, the sociopath who committed these murders in Columbus. Much later, right, because history is, is filled with hindsight and because the prosecution made a pretty convincing case against one particular man, we now associate these murders with Carlton Gary. Carlton Gary is a pretty infamous figure here in Columbus. His name resonates with a lot of individuals. But chances are, if you're tuning into this podcast, you might not be all that familiar with him. He was an African-American male born in 1950 to a pretty poor family here in Columbus, a pretty itinerant family. They moved around quite a bit, and Carlton Gary did as well over the course of his entire life. Having spent you know, many years in New York in the early 1970s, in South Carolina, here in Georgia and Florida at other points too. Carlton Gary, uh, we find out from the prosecution later on in the 1980s, had been arrested for two violent crimes against elderly women in New York in the 1970s. The M.O. there closely resembled what happened to the women who were you know, strangled by their stockings here in Columbus, some of whom who had been raped and many of them had been murdered. What's interesting here is that uh, we know that Carlton Gary was arrested for armed robbery in December of 1978, not long after the last murder uh, here in Columbus. From 1978 to 1983, he remained in jail, and it's quite possible that it was this time in prison that uh, led him to elude the Columbus Police Department, right? who what, did not have the assistance of the FBI or any other in, you know, external bodies in the GBI, um, uh, on this particular case. In 1983, Carlton Gary escapes. He's recaptured in 1984, and the particularities of his recapturing and how he then is identified and connected to this case, the students are going to further explore. But safe it to say, uh, there's a, a fair amount of evidence to do this. What we know is that he killed these two women in New York, all right? Um, and that most likely when he moved to Columbus in the latter part of the 1970s, he targeted many women in the same kind of MO that he had done in New York. He will face trial from 1985 to 1986, where he will then be sentenced to death on August 27th, 1986. Um, 
only to be executed in 2018. It's safe to say that this particular story and Carlton Gary's uh, you know, period of time in jail after 1986 to his execution in 2018 have haunted the city in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's a pretty common narrative in Columbus, actually, that houses in the Midtown area still have bars on windows because women were afraid of, 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 of somebody breaking into their homes and, and adding their name to the list of victims here. Over the years, uh, and as the trial and so, you know, several issues of appeals worked its way through the system, the local newspaper would, would, um, would report on the fate of Gary. And then in 2011, this case became uh, you know, a, a source of global intrigue. In 2011, David Rose published his, his book, The Big Eddie Club, The Stocking Stranglings in Southern Justice. This book is highly controversial in the city. Uh, we even talked to our librarian who indicated that the three of the three copies that the library holds here on Columbus State University's campus, two of those copies have gone missing. Somebody has stolen those copies, and the one remaining copy had to be moved, actually, to the special collections to stop somebody from stealing it, which I, I find quite humorous, but indicative of a much larger uh, theme here that this is a controversial case. David Rose is a journalist. He's not a historian by training, but he is, uh, you know, one of the most outspoken defenders of Carlton Gary. David Rose uh, identifies many things in his book that he, he thinks of as, as kind of wishy-washy evidence or failures in procedure. Of those things, one of the survivors, uh, one of the surviving women of these attacks, uh, he calls a, a weak witness. She previously, or at least initially, had argued that it was too dark in her home to be able to identify her assailant. Later on, she identifies or misidentifies three African-American men and then eventually lands on Carlton Gary once he's linked to the case. Uh, David Rose also identifies issues with fingerprint analysis, uh, uh, the processing of semen proteins used against Carlton Gary, as well as some bite mark analysis that the prosecution puts forward. Ultimately, David Rose's argument here is that the judges and prosecutors had connections to whites-only organizations here in Columbus, the most substantial or significant of which was the Big Eddie Club. This Big Eddie Club, according to David Rose, uh, you know, used its influence to, to shape the prosecution's case against Carlton Gary, but also to guarantee that Gary didn't get an adequate defense. Now, David Rose uh, is a problematic writer in and of himself. As I noted, he's a journalist and has faced defamation charges back in, in the UK. So we need to take all of this with a, with a grain of salt. But others, too, try to, to shape the narrative of this particular case. Renata Solomon. Renata Solomon uh, was, a, was from Germany. She had moved to Columbus, as many people had, because of Fort Benning, just to the south of the city. Renata Solomon lived during this case and was convinced of Carlton Gary's innocence. She self-published uh, her story in 2018 following the execution of, of Carlton Gary, and to this day uh, still insists that uh, Carlton Gary was innocent. 
Renata Solomon identified a man who was her landscaper as the actual assailant, but then no real evidence was ever put forth. Over the course of this class, students uh, had the opportunity to encounter William Rawlings. William Rawlings is a published author here in Georgia. He is a medical doctor by training, but has received uh, an honorary degree from Mercer University and regularly publishes with them. He recently decided to take on the stocking strangler case and to identify, uh, you know, or the facts that are beyond reproach. William Rawlings came and visited my students, actually, and the students had a, a chance to ask him questions, as well as Bill Smith, the prosecuting attorney, who, who joined William Rawlings that particular day. According to William Rawlings, this uh, was a pretty clear-cut case. Three individuals were identified as victims and used over the course of the trial to, to sentence um, Carlton Gary as guilty and then to push for the death sentence ultimately. Uh, the students were pretty convinced, although not entirely without uh, skepticism. And so that initial encounter with William Rawlings, with David Rose, as well as the story of Renata Solomon, led them to conduct their own research in the transcripts of, of the court trial, as well as the history of the time period. So what we have here, then, is another interpretation of the Stocking Strangler case one that finds a middle ground between all the ones that we've thus encountered here, and one that is largely based on evidence. But inevitably, as you can probably imagine, this type of genre, true crime meets the classroom, means that the students' voices are forefronted. It means that the students got to choose what kinds of themes they wanted to explore, which themes they thought this case really emphasized for them. As such, we're going to see a lot of issues that are important for a lot of Americans here in 2020 and 2021, actually. Race, the Black Lives Matter movement, comes out here quite prevalently. Uh, that's largely informed by David Rose's approach, I think, but also is very much on the minds of these students. One of the episodes in the, in the middle of the podcast on sexual assault is inspired by the Me Too movement and women who are speaking up to, to call out their, their sexual aggressors. At the core of their argument is, is the idea that there probably were other victims in this case that never stepped forward, uh, either because of shame or because of family obligation or, or who knows. But this speaks to these students, and so I wanted to make sure that this podcast gave them a space to, to, to explore themselves, the history of Columbus, this particular case, all kinds of things. I'm really excited about this season, actually. I love that these students uh, tackled this subject with such, uh, with such vitality and enthusiasm. I think it really comes across in the episodes, uh, and I hope you enjoy.